Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet is a show featuring rotating guests who discuss the impact the internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devin Sorrentino? I'm an artist currently living in San Francisco. In this episode, graphic designer, artist, and writer Nicole Killian discusses the breakdown of the virtual and real world and how the line between these two places has become blurred to completely erased. Hey, Nicole. Hi. I'm with Nicole Killian. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I am a designer, writer, artist. I live in Richmond, Virginia. Um, I teach at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm really into the internet. Uh, <laughs> um, what, do tell. What is this internet thing you talk I know. about? Yeah, I guess my, my work revolves around how we maneuver online structures uh, in order to project identity, I guess from a queer feminist perspective. So that's that's where I'm coming from. I'm really into, interested in language and messaging and talking with images. Also community online. So like how do people band together? Cool. Yeah. And where can people find you, your work? on the internet um you can google me nicole killian or uh, my website is nylondip.com i made up that name in 2003 and i'm too <laughs> lazy to change it i thought it sounded good in 2003 and so that that's what it is hey <laughs> the, the one thing that like people think that the internet like things just like go away Mm-mm. but what i found is that it's been like the strongest archive tether yeah. of all time yeah it was it was before people were using their names for their websites so at that time it, it seemed like really cool all the designers i guess i was into had sites like praystation.com <laughs> or you know no i remember it, i mean like it was like the first idea of everybody trying to market themselves yeah it exactly. was like a brand new concept and i had watched donnie darko and drew barrymore <laughs> was like cellar doors the most beautiful like <laughs> phrase and then i was like what phrase do i like let me make something up nylon dip sounds sounds pretty <laughs> cheesy <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's really good, actually. <laughs> so, and we're recording in Richmond, Virginia. We are at Studio Sets Workspace recording this. It's two friends of ours, uh, which is how we know each other. We met at Minneapolis College of Art and Design, Lauren Thorson and Yash Stefanski. So you should check out their work as well. Let's start off with the idea. You talked a little bit about you're interested in... Uh, creating spaces and thinking about identity and community but people when they associate identity is like this idea of being original or originality and Mm -hmm. the internet's really in my opinion has challenged what we decide is original and Mm -hmm. how originality is spread amongst communities Mm -hmm. and you shared with me an article by Jacob Chochi and it talked about Rihanna and Azalea Banks put out two videos in days of each other that had like a really similar aesthetic. It reminded me of that Simpsons episode where Homer gets trapped in like the third dimension and like a Halloween horror. But <laughs> this idea that originally it's first who copied who, but then essentially like what does it even mean to have a subculture permeate into popular culture? And then that made me think about, well, how are not just like subcultures, but different religious cultures, like people of color, all these different cultures are now moving into this space where community is so fluid. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit before we started recording about this idea that you were saying that there's kind of a lack of agency in terms of taking responsibility for when appropriation happens. But it's starting Mm -hmm. to, I I think, with the internet become harder to identify when is 
something being appropriated or how do you address it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what's weird is that we can kind of find anything we want on the internet. So why people are not actually looking these things up when they take is is kind of crazy to me. But I think appropriation, people aren't taking sort of responsibility over sort of their privilege to access. So we, we see something online and we think, okay, it's online, so I own it too. Yeah. And to some extent we do. There's this artist, Jeanette Hayes, and I, I love this. There's this short video clip where she says, if you put it on the internet, it's mine. Something yeah. like that. And I really love that because I do appropriate in my own work. But I think that we need to think about where we're appropriating from. So are you appropriating up, which means you're pulling from more power and privilege. So... Are you taking a clip from a Disney Channel show? Sure. You know, or co-opting, you know, a logo? Or are you appropriating from a small business or a a subculture or a religious minority or people of color? I think that that's where it becomes highly problematic because power and privilege come into play it's well, yeah like, and it's like the community that if like if you're taking from a community that doesn't have as much representation as much control over their content you're essentially continuing excluding them from the conversation mm-hmm. even a conversation that they started mm-hmm. i think about this a lot in terms of when i go to um huffington post is what's trending yeah or yahoo trending yeah and how yahoo and huffington post gather that information it's like there's kind of like a tier that memes and viral content go through right they're mm-hmm. generated on on something like Vine, possibly Twitter, maybe Instagram. Mm-hmm. Then there get there's like some minimal circulation that happens. Then it gets to a BuzzFeed. Mm-hmm. Then BuzzFeed starts putting it places. And I, I kind of think about this in like, then it gets a little bit more acceptable for white privileged people. <laughs> yeah. And then it ends up in the Huffington Post of like, look at this thing where the original content creator, and a lot of times I usually see this genesis happen on Vine, yeah. which has like a really large, like, um, like the largest people of color community Mm -hmm. um if you look at demographics and data are Mm -hmm. using vine and twitter Mm -hmm. and all of this content's getting sourced up but the people who are sourcing the content are never credited Mm -hmm. they're not participated in the conversation they're not the ones that are being allowed to generate these articles that are then passed around Mm -hmm. so it becomes this weird blur where for me i think that the internet I like that idea that you put it online and it becomes accessible and usable Mm -hmm. by everybody in that to, I, I like the idea that we're moving to, I know it scares some people, but a more global community. Yeah, yeah. But we're turning into a more visibly global community that's using the constructs of an old world mm-hmm. and still applying them to like that this technology mm-hmm. where we're seeing the same thing happen that has historically happened to all of these different communities where they are used, dried up, and then sold mm-hmm. to people who have a larger voice, larger pockets. Yeah. Um, a friend and um, student of mine, Paula V. Sen, she was in a, a class of mine this semester called Medium's Misuse, and we were reading Subculture, the Media Style by Dick Hebdige. And when we talk about that book, we it always, it's so funny, I sort of try to time, like, all roads lead to Miley Cyrus in this country. You know, like, we <laughs> Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I've talked about her on every single episode. That's funny. (laughs) Paula V said this really great thing. We were talking about appropriation and when is it sort of um, appreciation and when is it appropriation? Yeah. But she said this great thing where she was like, I'm from India and uh, 
Sorry, Paula V, if I'm totally like misquoting you. When you take all the good things and then you ignore all the other things, sure. that's where it becomes really wrong because you're like, oh, I really like this thing aesthetically, so I'm just going to take it. I think about this in terms of the way language is starting to be perceived online and mm-hmm. combing through Twitter and Instagram. And like, I, I'm starting to follow people who are even almost a decade younger than me. Mm-hmm. And everybody's starting to use... I remember there was like a distinction of white people using abonics as this kind of very clear, like this is not a language that that you're a part of. And if you're using it, even in the most uh, genuine way, you're mocking it, Mm -hmm. Uh, you're mocking that culture. Mm -hmm. And people who did use it, you know, growing up in Atlantic City and then living in Philadelphia, like abonics had a little bit more fluidity, but it still was very class oriented. Mm -hmm. And people who like, I remember when I was in college and if somebody would say like something that was like very clearly defined as like part of the black community, there was like a collective, like at least sigh of Mm -hmm. annoyance Yeah. where now white teenagers are using things like thought and all this like language that is like very much generated from the black community and terms of, that are not just from the black community, but like of a certain class. And there's not that pushback. There's not that criticality that's like, and um, there was an article that I read and I shared with Nicole, where it's essentially talking about this idea of like borrowed blackness and Mm -hmm. that there's not as much challenge to white people doing this on online social media Mm -hmm. profiles, because for lack of a better term, people are like whitewashing the impact that doing something like that has on the black community and there's this like very false idea that there's becoming this like more homogenous existence between race and that like people using a similar language online kind of shows that movement but in the reality i mean you can see all the time there's like a crazy civil unrest in this country it's kind of dangerous space of like perceived okayness yeah it's like all (laughs) all those people that say like i don't see color i'm a really open person i'm a neoliberal i think that's really dangerous because you're not acknowledging difference and you're not acknowledging that there are communities you're not a part of and you can be you can be an ally or you can appreciate and be supportive but like that doesn't mean that you should take you know sure. it's sort of weird because i feel like i see those conversations on my twitter feed and on my facebook you know and tumblr dashboards but I think that's skewed because of like who who I'm following and like... Yeah, you have a very like narrow view. Yeah. And I think that that's the reason why the type of appropriation that we're talking about in general can kind of happen so quickly. We forget that we are participating in a broader audience because it's really easy to think uh, small in terms Mm -hmm. of like social media presence because when you say something, you think that you're only talking to your community. Exactly. You forget that the information online can be passed so fluid. article that was called online imagine black english by uh, manuel abru i'm sure i'm mm-hmm. butchering his name and i'm sorry they show pictures of like different white people who you know have drawn like tupac tattoos all over themselves or have done like you know gang signs or, or things along those lines and when that person put that image online they didn't think about it ending up in this article mm-hmm. it, they didn't think about well, what is my statement that I'm making about Mm -hmm. the community that generated these iconic symbols to begin with? 
but that's the that's the problem right is like historically we haven't set up a forum for people to be critical and i don't even know if it's if we're moving into a space where there is fluidity like where you were saying like appropriation versus appreciation Mm -hmm. and i don't think that we're using the internet as a platform to surface a lot of this content, Mm -hmm. but we're not allowing space for the communities who create it to Mm -hmm. weigh in on our use, like our collective use, everybody's use. I think it's, I mean, I think that's slowly starting to happen because of accountability. I think that we're living in a time where on the internet, people will hold you more accountable. Whereas, you know, in the 90s, all these white kids wearing like sagging jeans yeah um, or the whole term you, like wigger that yeah like existed yeah i mean that you would never hear that now and and also being held uh, there was no accountability then and i think that it's i just read somewhere you know people saying oh people are being more too sensitive now it's like no people aren't being too sensitive we just have platforms now where we're actually talking about this stuff online and yeah That's really important because it's not about, like, with everything happening around us, we have to talk about these things. We have to talk about Black Lives Matter and, like, what does it mean for white people online to, you know, quote... Fetty wap, but then like they give two fucks about you know sure people dying in the streets. Um, I think that it's starting to make that like duality that you know both of us are white, so we're we're talking about like the du- at least I am talking about the duality of white culture where like we fetishize black culture yeah. and then there's been a consistent reality where we might fetishize it, but the minute we have to care about it, we've kind of collectively and many times. throughout existence have decided not to and now not taking a stance not being vocal Mm -hmm. because we have such visibility into our lives and our each other's opinions that i think you're right if if i choose to wear my nas sweatshirt but i don't have an opinion on michael brown then there is now we can clearly see that there's something problematic with my use of exactly like that culture yeah It's interesting to me in terms of like how much conversation has moved on. Like I wonder how much conversation I see online about like political issues or uh, sociological issues that I feel people are still very threatened to have them offline Mm -hmm. in a way that I find pretty interesting. I moved to a new city where I have a really hard time in general in my life having small talk. It's yeah. never been something that I'm good at. Yeah. And I immediately always feel like I get too deep too quick. Like, <laughs> I automatically, like, want to know every, your stance on, yeah. like, life, right? You're like, tell me how you feel about these things so we can decide if we should actually be friends. Yeah, like, where online, I feel that, and now, I again, I'm talking about the narrow view of my community. It's very rare that I see, like, a tertiary post, right? Mm-hmm. Usually somebody's posting about something that they're invested in. Yeah. And I see that like a lot more of the conversations that happen online, when I try to have them offline, there becomes like a barrier mm-hmm. of people are much more careful about what they say. It's interesting to see the platform kind of start to specifically Facebook move to where people, even though I think that we have a hard time in a physical space being more emotional, that they're requesting like more emotion in the way that we can respond to one another online. Mm-hmm. We're allowing ourselves to have harder conversations mm-hmm. with one another online. Yeah. And the people who talk about like this hyper political correctness or sensitivity, I think it's because the more we have these conversations online, they're bleeding offline. Yeah. And people are calling each other out. 
Yeah. I see that with my students, which is really exciting. I mean, things that would fly 15 years ago in classrooms can't happen anymore because we people don't want to stand for the same bullshit. And I don't know. I think also in terms of access with the internet, you can call more people into a conversation. And so we don't have the authority to speak on certain things, but we can support someone else's voice. Yeah. And I think that is really powerful. I also think what social media platforms allow us to do is that it's really hard to speak autonomously sometimes. And when you feel threatened or you're talking about something that you think can be threatening, Mm -hmm. or what, if I post something on Facebook, I like recently posted this like mini rant, which I actually should stop calling it a rant because I thought it was like really important to say where I've been very jaded recently about being a female within art communities. I think you discredit yourself when you say rant. Yeah. We're so used to doing that. Yeah. yeah. And I actually put rant at the end of the thing yeah. and now I like regret it. But I'm not gonna edit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I remember putting it and thinking like, I'm going to put this and people are going to be bothered by it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I got like, I post my podcast all the time. I get like maybe like 10, 11 likes. I got like 50 likes over this thing. Like I had no idea. And like it made me realize where I'm going with this is that if I have a conversation with you in person, mm-hmm. I have to, like there's the pressure that I, I don't have a, I don't have a community behind what I'm saying. Yeah. If I tell you that I feel as a woman in scenarios that I am patronized and talked down to, and I'm talking to like one other person and say it happens to be a man or other women, because it's not like other women can't like put you in a demoralizing situation because of that context. You feel that you're, you only have yourself to, to back you up. But when you can put something online and you can see an overwhelming response of support, I think that it makes it easier every time you want to say something that you think might be controversial. Yeah. Because you can see... I was actually weirdly laying in bed the other day thinking about how often I used to use the word gay. Mm -hmm. Like, that's so gay. I used Mm -hmm. to say it all the time and, and... I never even right, and and my mom's a lesbian, and I yeah. like I'd be like that's so gay, you're gay, 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 gay. Yeah, and I never say it anymore, mm-hmm. like never. Yeah, and I say and I and I was like, oh, it must be. First, I had this thought of like, oh, it must be because I'm getting older. Yeah, and I was like, no way, man, I say fuck all the time. Yeah. like I say other like yeah. ridiculous things yeah. all the time, and. What I realized is because there is a collective, I remember posting on Facebook maybe like five years ago when I first moved to Minneapolis and all of my friends back home who were all liberal, hipster, cool, mm-hmm. intellectuals used to say no homo. Like if like two, yeah, like two dudes yeah. would like do anything like, rem- like remotely emotional yeah. before they would do it, they'd say no homo. We all cracked up and thought it was yeah. like so funny. Yeah. And I remember posting on Facebook something to two of my guy friends and was like, oh, blah, blah, no homo. And somebody sent me a message that was like, that's a really rude thing to say. Yeah. And I, I deleted it and I never have said no homo ever since then. And at first I remember thinking the whole like, oh, you're being really sensitive. I'm just making a joke. Like I know what I'm saying. And yeah. I try to like call people out when I can in, in, in real life as much as I try to hold people accountable online because I do think it's like really easy for us to be able to do that online and message someone and say, you know, what you just said is really, but you know, how many times do we actually do that when we're in other spaces? Sure. Um, I do think that the one thing that becomes misleading with Facebook is the, this like idea that it's a platform for positivity. Mm -hmm. And recently 
Facebook is introducing some changes because everybody knows the like button. Yeah. Like, I like this, I heart this, yeah. I like, I heart, I like. Yeah. And um, they're introducing, like, other people will, like, I, I remember, you know, if somebody puts that their parent passed away or that their, you know, dog died. People and, like those statuses. Yeah. It's and so it's, weird. And it's so hard. And I find that, like, pretty, like, conflicting, too, of where I want to give you acknowledgement. Support, yeah, that you've read it. Or... But I don't want to, like, write a comment yeah. because, like, that's too much effort. Yeah. <laughs> Which also begs a differ of like how much do you actually care about these people yeah. within your community. So Facebook is introducing these new emojis to mm-hmm. um, instead of just like you can express a, a larger range mm-hmm. of uh, emotion. But I think it's interesting that they chose to do emojis rather than like dislike or sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, like writing out the word mm-hmm. because there's a Wired article that I'm referencing here that talks about Facebook trying to keep the keep their platform as a platform of positivity. Mm-hmm. And just from the conversation that we're having right now, one I'll call bullshit on that. You want things to be positive and validating so people will keep engaging in your product. So yeah. let's let's take the social issue like right off the table. Right. But then I wonder with all of this idea of genuine conversation, genuine emotion that we're talking about, that if our tools are starting to gear towards only presenting the positive, Mm -hmm. will it diminish these more substantive conversations. Right. Well, I think the emoji thing is really interesting to me because, well, and the fact that they're called reactions, I think is funny. You know, like, yeah, pop, they're Facebook reactions as a reaction, or wow as a reaction, angry as a reaction. I think it's weird because I'm a big language person. Mm-hmm. I really love language. I really get off on like when you see like bits of language that you can kind of pull apart or live vicariously through. But so it's really weird to think about how these little like messaging units or these images, how we speak through images, and then yeah. how these images are supposed to encapsulate all that that emotion is. Sure. So, you know a red to yellow gradient face with a furrowed brow means that I'm angry but then how do you what type of angry is that sure like are you angry disappointed are you angry violent yeah are you angry (laughs) I haven't seen I'm assuming like most uh Facebook updates like they're they roll it out and I haven't actually which I kind of felt a little slighted because normally like when Facebook does a rollout, I get like a new feature pretty quickly Same. as like an early adopter and I haven't seen this yet. Yeah, I and haven't I'm, either. And I'm wondering because the article is like a little bit old, I'm wondering if they're realizing that this isn't a positive mm-hmm direction to go like the positivity that they want Mm -hmm. but i think that it's interesting that there was this outcry from this community of facebook users which is in the millions and Mm -hmm. probably billions at this point i don't know the exact numbers that this claim of wanting more control and like visibility to communicating emotions that like a like does not necessarily demonstrate the identity that i'm looking for Mm -hmm. but i was actually talking to lauren Thorson, the girl I mentioned earlier on the podcast today, uh, my significant other travels all the time. To be in constant communication when somebody's traveling is exhausting because eventually you're just saying kind of the same things. Yeah. Like, I miss you, I love you. We almost entirely communicate in Facebook stickers. Mm-hmm. Like, and now even like the same like five Facebook stickers. Yeah. Reading this article, I started thinking a little bit more critically of like, well, because we're not expressing ourselves with language or our voices, mm-hmm. is our emotions that easy to bucket? Right. You know, and are they actually representing like any type of like intrinsic quality to my identity mm-hmm. or are we ushered into these camps mm-hmm. of like these are general things that humans feel. Yeah. Here is a limitation 
express yourself with it. Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't know. It then matters which ones you choose. You know, I feel like I have friends who use specific ones all the time, and my favorite is the Pusheen paw. <laughs> I use that a lot. As oh, a Pusheen's sal- good. As a salutation, as a goodbye, as a paw of support. Yeah, high or, four. You know, just like, you know, I just try to use it as much as I can. Yeah, you, when you're only given, you know, these certain prescribed images then how do you maneuver them as a way to be yourself? Yeah. There's other steps that Facebook is has trying to start incorporating to make our personal identities more transparent. And mm-hmm. the other update that I've seen, and I actually do have this on my Facebook page, but I haven't engaged in it, is that your profile picture can be a video. Yeah. And uh, I haven't done it. Snapchat does something similar where you can have like a series of yeah. pictures that make a little bit of a gif, but they're, it's still very controlled. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking a little bit because somebody who makes video work yeah. and video art, I got excited at first at this idea of being creative in this space. And I think that what social media tools have allowed a lot of people to do is kind of connect to a more creative side that they wouldn't have had originally yeah. because of how much like hyper curation you have to do with yeah. all these platforms. And then the more I thought about creating a video for my profile the more detracting it became for me this idea that somebody can always hear me and I don't know if there was like a audio component to this but like the idea that somebody could see my face move and my expressions and like can I actually capture myself the right angle and light the entire time Uh became incredibly intimidating and didn't like the idea that it could actually represent me so transparently right yeah i haven't played around with that function yet i saw it and it reminded me of harry potter moving newspapers for some reason i don't know why that's that's right where i went to but i think what's weird about then having sort of a moving profile is like your body is so different you know it's like the awareness now it's not just like an angle and the eyes you know it's like you're moving it puts you in a different vulnerable spot by giving you that option. And there's been like a lot of great memes recently because I think that Tinder was also engaging in the idea of creating like video profile pics and like people were making fun of like on dating apps, you are showing a very one-dimensional version of yourself to attract someone. Nobody is showing like that under chin in any of those photos. And how quickly a video completely dismantled the illusion that you have created for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I do sometimes get impressed with how much people have adopted certain video platforms online like videos and snapchat like vine videos but there's it's like a temporality to those Mm -hmm. where your profile on facebook is it feels like this very permanent place that people go to interact with you Mm -hmm. yeah i mean snapchats go away well kind of go away or whatever they're in the ether Someone can get to them. The cloud can get to <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, the, the rain cloud of yeah. like explosive Snapchats. I don't know. When you put it on Facebook, there's a different access point. It's sort of there as a stamp. This all draws me to an article that you shared that called Identify Yourself by Crystal South. And there's a lot of different components to the article. But one that reminded me of new like video profiles and what we're talking about is specifically the idea of like the internet being a mirror. Mm-hmm. And I thought about this in terms of identity where it's oftentimes we 
when people, especially intellectuals, talk about the internet, they talk about it as this thing that's like happening to us right that we have like very little agency in what i liked about this article is this idea that what you're seeing is a projection of yourself Mm -hmm. and i think that that's why the internet becomes like this kind of frightening thing to many people because you're starting to you identify yourself in a particular way like you as in the collective you and i'm talking about like i think about myself in a very particular way and then i start to see things online that are very threatening to that idea like if i want to think of myself as like not a a racist person or if I want to think about myself as a progressive person or somebody who's knowledgeable or an artist and I'm starting to see something that's counterintuitive to that in my online space that becomes like really threatening there's not much criticality of like well why am I seeing that well we build those I mean with every like and share and look we're building this algorithm around ourselves and I think then everything that gets like spit back out at you is coming coming from that for better or worse so I don't think of there being a division between IRL and URL I use that a lot and actually a friend of mine recently because I'm really into like girl culture and uh, teen like tumblr girls and stuff uh, a, friend of, <laughs> a friend of mine said G and then parentheses URL equals G parentheses IRL and I was like ah that's so great why didn't I think of that yeah um, girl and girl I don't know that's a tangent But um, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. To think of them as separate right now just seems to be like defeating the purpose of like how we sort of hunt and gather content. And I think that the internet just makes everything more, we're more aware of what we were doing before. So we've always been living vicariously through other images, other words, you know. Other when, spaces, other places, spaces. Yeah. When we were t- when we were teens, we were putting posters up on our walls of things that we wanted to be or people that we wanted to date, listening to things, putting like quotes on our notebooks, and now that's just so much. It's real in a digital space, and we yeah. see that in such a our Facebook pages are the bedroom walls that we lived in you know it's like I'm sharing a Depeche Mode music video and then I'm you know sharing an article about whatever and those are the things that like I want I want to look at but I also want other people to see so maybe that's the difference is when we were in our bedroom we were the only ones seeing those things and now it's like my Facebook profile is not private presumably anyone could see it if they want and that transparency creates a vulnerability that I don't think that when we started as a culture participating in social media and online spaces because the access and availability was so narrow when I started talking on chat rooms on Prodigy yeah like there was not what I did within that space uh, was not transparent and many people did not see or experience that online interaction mm-hmm. where now like you're saying every online interaction is trackable visible and repeatable mm-hmm. and everybody hears the harsh words like your job like you apply for a job and they can go look at your profile and that the fairness of that I love when people talk about fair in terms yeah. of information essentially yes that is a barometer to judge you on because i think that like you were saying people still talk in this divide of in real life versus online and the problem which what i liked about this idea that the internet is a mirror is that there is no separate Mm -hmm. space (laughs) that everything that we do in one or the other impacts yeah and it's it's a feedback loop i think that's why you talked about accountability earlier in the conversation we lived you and i at our age lived in an existence where you could do something online and it was anonymous totally 
and that has switched. There's yeah. no anonymity online anymore. Yeah. It has become a very strong place of accountability. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, like I find this within the arts a lot where there becomes this idea that the internet's an unsafe place. Mm-hmm. for many things yeah. and the, it's even used in the term like it, we both saw i was at superscript you saw a lot of the the talks and people were very fearful of like how people are being treated online and this was one of those moments where i wish that i could have had an article like this on yeah. hand to be like uh-huh. the the things that you're afraid of they happen in the real world and then are represented online yeah i think it's sort of funny when people say oh you know The internet's so dangerous, online predators, you know, dot, dot, dot. I'm like, what world do you live in? Like, when I'm out walking down the street, I know that there's a chance something could happen to me. Like, I'm a woman, you know. Both of us are, like, five feet tall. Like, our advantage, like, I am way safer in my apartment. Right. Scrolling vine feeds than I ever will. Like, Like, my physical body in society, like invites invites idiots to say shit to me like that is worse than yeah i don't know it's just really funny i'm like dangerous people existed before the internet yeah and what i think that the internet has provided which is like where like i i kind of started down this road was we talked about it provides now some accountability if somebody wants to say something degrading on twitter which happens (laughs) by the droves you know there is i love looking at twitter and when somebody puts something negative and immediately people can promote that negativity but then they can also push it down yeah and like uh you shared on facebook about the i can never remember the actress's name to say it correctly cara cara delavine yeah i think think that's her name yeah i don't even know like what she's in i don't really either actually and the only thing i know is i think she's like a model slash actress or model transitioning into acting i know that like her eyebrows have set off like a really strong trend amongst like amongst like thick eyebrows in the female community (laughs) but like she uh recently appropriated in a negative way inappropriated yes she inappropriated (laughs) a shirt but that uh you you have the history to this much Uh, better than i do well to backtrack there's this really amazing shirt that says the future is female. It originated from a lesbian separatist slogan just for like that short backstory. There's a really wonderful Instagram called Herstory run by Kelly Rakowski and Rachel Burks, who owns Other Wild, got permission from Liza Cowan, who I believe had taken the image of the future is female shirt and talked to Kelly and said, I want to make this shirt really wonderful. 25% of the proceeds go to Planned Parenthood. But anyways, a, a few weeks ago, the New York Times wrote about this shirt because St. Vincent and her girlfriend, Kara Delevingne, were photographed wearing this shirt and now you know fast forward to last week Kara posts on Instagram that people were asking her where she got this shirt so she made it and I mean it was the same typeface same kerning come on like yeah if, you know like if you're gonna use the slogan at least like do something different with it it's just 
it was really shitty because she's appropriating a small queer feminist business and that's not a way of creating community it's not a way of uplifting other women it's not an act of feminism to do that and yeah. so that's sort of what happened or is happening right now yeah and the reason why i bring this up now is what i found amazing about that post so i originally saw your post about it on facebook and then i went and looked on instagram mm-hmm. and here's somebody who has a ton of fans and is very well supported online but if you read through the comments on her Instagram feed, like she became attacked by many people. Like there, and there were people who defended her and people who, mm-hmm. but I, the fact that the discourse could exist, mm-hmm. if that shirt was inappropriated <laughs> in a world before she could promote the shirt online, there was not, there wouldn't have been that accountability. Nothing. And the plat, like the online pl- platform allowed other wild to, to speak on it. It allowed exactly everybody to have a voice in the conversation. And even though the actress, Kara, whatever did the very minimal of at least crediting, yeah. eventually editing her Instagram to credit <laughs> that would have never, even that small mm-hmm. insignificant, but small step would mm-hmm. have, would not have existed. And that's where people say that the internet is just like this manufacturer of negativity that it's not set up that way because, again, if the internet is a mirror and we are saying that as a society that we want to move into this space that allows, for lack of a better term, more fairness, Mm -hmm. like I think that the platforms are starting to mirror that. But the one thing that I, I find kind of interesting about this that isn't talked about, and I did read... A little bit about it in the Atlantic is that a lot of these systems as they grow, like most platforms, like, and, and I don't know how familiar you are with like the tech coding side of most of these mm-hmm. systems and platforms, but it becomes like code that goes on top of code and yeah. becomes this like weird bastardization of whatever the, the first thing was. And a lot of the, the decisions of how to grow these platforms are based off of data and then historical data. And because we did live in an online existence that was not as transparent and not mm-hmm. as accountable, a lot of the data that was created in terms of like location of people of like what they were searching and all this stuff was, it starts to bake in a lot of the inherent racism and yeah. sexism that our other systems have. And I think that there's like, there's a lack of conversation about like maybe the negativity that we're still finding or seeing within our internet spaces is because it's like baked into all of the data that we started Mm -hmm. like that the foundational data that the internet started with well i think that technology and you know coding and the internet still lives within a space of like the white dude doing it and um i think until we get other voices Building. building yeah that that isn't going to change and so um martine sims in her walker art center talk i think at one point, someone asks her, you know, like what something about coding or getting involved in that. And she's like, we need more, you know, women of color doing this. And I think that's really, that kind of stuff is really important because when you're building systems, if, if the people building systems aren't, you know, aren't doing it for you or they don't have you in mind, yeah, that's, you're, you're erased. And so like how it's about access again. It's like, so building sites, uh, the code, all that language, like who is in charge of that language? And that, that goes back to that t-shirt, like, who, you know, or like even understanding history. Like, how do, yeah. how do we find that history? Do we have access to that history? Like, where are the spaces where that history can be found? 
It's a really good point. And then it becomes, it's not about blaming the internet so much as like the, the access to education, mm-hmm. the access to money, the access to so mm-hmm. many other things that, again, I think that when people talk about the negativity of the internet, they're uh, mad at a symptom of a larger disease. Mm-hmm. And they just, again, negate the fact that the internet is a representation of the society that we've built yeah. outside of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that idea that this virtual space lives autonomously from our real world space is uh, almost like a safety net. Mm-hmm. That if we can say that this thing is an other, then Maybe it's this idea that we have control, like complete control of it, when in reality we don't because it becomes a manifestation of our regular existence. You shared with me like a a very comical article about this woman that was presumed, a girl that was presumed dead in China. This girl disappeared. She disappeared for 10 years. It was presumed that she was dead. And it turned out that she ended up just like living in an internet cafe in China, (laughs) playing video games for 10 years, supporting herself by like working in this internet cafe and that's like a really like comical one like that's ridiculous i think it's funny also that the game that she was playing was crossfire which is like a first person shooter game that i don't know anyone who plays crossfire anymore i think when i was at rit in the early 2000s like that was the game people played yeah it was like yeah i don't know it's just really funny like to be playing a first person shooter game for 10 years like, what, what does that do to your brain? Yeah, like, and the reason I'm highlighting this particular <laughs> story is that, you know, it it talks about, like, as if she was absent for 10 years. So the point where, like, they presumed her being dead and yeah. that all of her interaction that she was doing was online, mm-hmm. right? And as if that was something separate of, like, this presumed, like, wasted away mm-hmm. existence where, in reality, she now, I would think, had... Probably not the... Well, honestly, I don't know where she lived in China to know the difference between like what type of life she would have had offline (laughs) versus online. But it's kind of... It's articles like that that still perpetuate this idea of separation Mm -hmm. to me. That if your entire pursuits are online, then there's something that has taken you away from like a physical reality, which means that you're in like a a non-existent reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of ways in which we try to apply how things work in a physical space to an online space. And when they don't translate online, they're deemed not as important or real. Or they don't even exist. Yeah. Yeah. And where I think that people can still sometimes be dismissive of all the important things that happen like on Twitter, on Facebook, Mm -hmm. in those spaces is because they don't happen in the same way. Mm -hmm. Like where you're, you know, in the beginning of this conversation, you're saying like, you try to take as much responsibility offline as you do online to call people out mm-hmm. or to have these kind of conversations offline. But because online they happen in a different way, it's almost as if they're not they're either inconsequential or they're not as impactful. Mm-hmm. Uh, where in reality, the reach of your online voice goes like so much further. Yeah, I mean, I have had really intense conversations on Twitter with these other graphic designers that I really love and we are rarely all in the same physical space but what's funny is when I say that people can kind of chuckle when I say like I have really good conversations on Twitter with these people or like 
critical discourse, you know? It's still discredited as a, as a space for criticality, especially if it's not in written form, like yeah. as an article, you know? We, we talk differently than we type, and those two things are very different than how we write. And they shouldn't be the same. There's a good TED talk about that. It's called like texting is killing people, LOL. And it's a linguist talking about how people texting. Uh, it's actually like a different type of like being bilingual, which I think is is really interesting. Like how do we, what are those like word packets? You know, we speak in usually like eight, eight words and then there's like a pause. And yeah. we texting is so much closer to speech but it's also different. Um, yeah, especially with like all the introduction of shorthand and, yeah. and things like that. I do find that depending on who I'm talking to, then like my text conversations become different. Like totally. when I introduce punctuation, when I don't. Yeah. The way I communicate with my mom via text is uh-huh. so much different than like when I'm communicating with like my building manager. Yeah. Where I'm like, hi, sorry to bother you. Yeah. Like where my mom, I'm like, sup. <laughs> well, yeah, like we can change those. We can change or switch modes yeah. with our language. I think what I was trying to get at with Twitter and even like my Twitter, um, I'm called Saucy Unicorn. I only tweet in capital letters because it was sort of this joke at first that I was shouting into the ether with tw- with my tweets, my twats. Um, <laughs> and I actually wondered why you always typed in caps. It started as like I was sort of language archiving. So I was taking things out of context and then putting them in all capital letters and it just kind of stuck. But I think the fact that people can't look at something as critical discourse if it's written in a certain way or if LOL is attached is very similar to someone discrediting a woman for saying like. You know, it's like, it's like you're not listening to what I'm saying, you're just listening to how I say it. I've been thinking a lot about this in terms, I've been reading a lot of books about artist projection of the future in technology. Mm-hmm. And some of the books are so heavily academic that it's like reading a VCR manual. Mm-hmm. It's becoming hard for me to digest some mm-hmm. of the information. And I started thinking like a lot of the conversation becomes about um, the defense of the proletariat yeah. within these uh-huh. in these like heavy t- you know texts. Yeah. And I'm reading it, I'm like, wow, how inaccessible this information mm-hmm. is. And I talk about this on actually the the last podcast where the people writing stories on Twitter, remember the story of Zola yeah. that became so popular, like wildly popular and entertaining and exciting. Yeah. And just you saying that comment right now about like, depending on who, how the message is being said, validates it or dismisses it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we perpetuate that idea as technology becomes cheaper and other voices and other, from other classes mm-hmm. start to be able to say their opinion on these topics, mm-hmm. if we keep that elitist mentality, mm-hmm. yeah. and in academia, I really think it's the way that like, as much as a lot of people want to say that in academia, it's for like this greater good, this idea uh-huh. that like we're servicing. Yeah all classes yeah and it's like no the reason that things are written that way some of it is to be articulate and specific and then some of it is to be alienating exactly i've been having conversations with people about how problematic it is to write about feminism in like an academic journal or in an academic setting because like that sort of discourse should be happening with people with bodies in communities and so the minute it becomes academic i mean it is like you can get specific and you can get highly critical in a different space but the minute it's actually taken out of its context or um, sort of with living, breathing, you know, bodies, 
it's sort of neutered of its agency. Yeah. The more the arts adopt this idea that the virtual space and all of its participants mm-hmm. yeah. are actually having conversations that mm-hmm. impact like our existence in general, mm-hmm. the more agency that we will actually be providing all of these communities that yeah. as artists we're collectively saying that we're invested in. That's why I a lot of my work deals with, it, it has a very teen aesthetic a lot of times, or I use a lot of default tools like glitter text because I think what's really... What's really interesting about those tools are they're really cheap. You know, anyone can have a Tumblr for the most part. Anyone can put their text in, you know, with the uh, default, like, glitter text generator, like, on familylobby.com. But the minute it's put into those, um, those, that visual language, it automatically becomes discredited, you know? So when people talk about social justice or they talk about Tumblr feminism or Tumblr social justice all of a sudden it's supposed to be discredited because it's on this platform or because it is using an animated gif or it's you know it's it's saying fuck the patriarchy but it's glittery and i think that that you're you talking about technology and voices and us sort of discrediting them or having a value system based on based on like who's saying it you know i think Mm -hmm. that's something i'm really interested in just sort of like how we discredit those voices in a digital space when we start to use a com a, a true common language like this iconography that people like our popular culture american first world generation <laughs> understands mm-hmm. and we start to inject criticality into the familiar yeah and place that in spaces that not just academics can right. attack or be critical of or reshare reuse but we really make that accessible to people who are outside of that community that arts community that will create more of an impact and I think that the the more we challenge the idea that the conversations that happen on Twitter or in these virtual communities or in our social media communities, if we acknowledge that they are as valid as any type of other academic space or things that happen in the real world, the louder other more segregated communities in those conversations will be allowed to participate. Twitter and Vine right now are the the largest area where people of color are participating and we uh, as a collective intellectual community are discrediting those spaces. Mm -hmm. We're essentially doing what history has done to those communities. I feel that this is like a, a point where People need to start just taking a side on like the importance of technology. We kind of live in a world where people still choose to not find something like Twitter or Facebook or these platforms important because it threatens... It threatens their voice, you know? Yeah. When, when other people come into a conversation, instead of being welcoming of a discourse, welcoming of other lived experiences, when you shut that down, it's like you're, do, you're doing the same thing as you said that history has done. I think on that note, a little bit of hope. Our overwhelming message is internet's pretty awesome. Yeah, I love the internet. Embrace it. Thanks again, Nicole, for taking the time to do this. This was super fun and insightful. Where again can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at nylondip.com or just Google me. And your Twitter is pretty great. Saucy Unicorn. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. As always, thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show. Share your thoughts and opinions about this episode's themes on Twitter at and the internet and on the blog at leeandtheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash internet.